I've shared many times that during my summer breaks as a college student, I worked as a household staff member for one of the wealthiest men in the country. He had dozens and dozens of household staff members, each of whom had been given specific roles within the house and varying degrees of authority to carry out those roles. But when one of the man's children would come into a room, when one of the man's sons or daughters would make a request or give an instruction, even the highest ranking household staff members would yield the floor to the children. After all, they were heirs of the estate and the house that belonged to their father also belonged to them. In our passage this morning, which is all of Hebrews chapter three, it's not a very long chapter, but it's chapter three. In this passage, the writer of Hebrews explains how this sort of hierarchy exists between Christ and the prophet Moses. It makes sense that the writer of Hebrews would want to highlight this because some of the Jewish Christians to whom this sermon-like letter was written, they were loosening their grip on the gospel message of Christ and they were returning to the law of Moses that had long defined the terms and conditions of their relationship with God. As you can see, Hebrews 3 begins with the word, therefore, signifying to us that the writer of Hebrews is continuing to expound upon the supremacy of Christ. Already in chapters one and two, he has depicted Christ as the sovereign supreme over all creation who outranks all God's angelic messengers and prophets. He has depicted Christ, the writer of Hebrews in chapters one and two has depicted Christ as the conquering savior who has died and risen in our human likeness in order to destroy the devil and to deliver us from the enslaving fear of death that the devil tries to hold over us. And in our passage, the writer of Hebrews is, well, continuing to raise up the supremacy of Christ. He's about to issue another urgent warning to the Jewish Christians and to us that we must hold fast our confident hope in the person and completed work of Christ. One thing I'd like to draw your attention to before I read the passage is how the writer of Hebrews in verse one addresses the recipients of this letter as holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. This is significant for a number of reasons not the least of which is that while this letter contains several urgent warnings that are aimed at correcting these wandering Jews from dangerous belief and behavior, while while the aim is to correct them, the writer still regards them as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He is confident that they will heed his warnings He's confident that they'll correct their course and so demonstrate that they are indeed the authentic followers of Christ that he knows them to be. And oh, that we would be committed to 
this, to believing for and hoping for and praying for the best in each other until proven otherwise. That we would address any concerns that we have with one another in a spirit of confident togetherness. That's like a sermon before we've even started. So without further ado, I'd invite you to follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, in the reading of your word just now, we have heard your voice. And by your merciful Holy Spirit, we ask that you would soften our hearts that we might listen to you, that we might believe your word, and that we might live lives that are confident in and worthy of the gospel of your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. not unlike the household staff of that wealthy man's estate, the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that when Christ, 
the incarnate second member of the Trinity, God's son and heir, when Christ enters the room, even the most honorable of all God's household staff, even Moses must yield the floor. For the remainder of our time, let's consider this passage in two parts, in two segments. First, we'll consider verses one through the first half of six, and then we'll consider the second half of six all the way through 19. If you're a note taker, we'll follow this two-point structure. Number one, by Christ, the house of God is built. Two, to Christ, the house of God must hold. By Christ, the house of God is built. To Christ, the house of God must hold. Number one, by Christ, the house of God is built. In the second half of verse one, the writer of Hebrews urges the Jewish Christians and us to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our faith. Now, we normally associate that term apostle with the 12 men who took the gospel message out into the world after Jesus' ascension. But because the term apostle simply means sent one of God, it can just as rightly be used of Christ. Christ also was sent of God into the world as our mediating high priest who offered one final sacrifice, the final sacrifice that was needed in order to atone for sinners and to bring them back to God once and for all. In verse two, the writer of Hebrews then says, Christ was faithful to him who appointed him to his work. Christ faithfully accomplished everything that our heavenly, uh, heavenly Father appointed him to accomplish during his incarnation. And he did so, the writer of Hebrews continues, just as Moses also had faithfully accomplished all that God had appointed him to accomplish in God's house. Now the term God's house is one of the terms used in scripture to describe the collection of all God's people the collection of God's people that has been steadily built up ever since the days of Abraham, back when God promised that he would make Abraham the father of many nations. In comparison to Moses, verse two, Christ was faithful to carry out all the father had appointed him to do. But in contrast to Moses, verses three through the first half of six, Christ has been counted worthy of more glory. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now the writer of Hebrews has already spilled a ton of ink reminding the Jewish Christians and us that Christ is God. And because Christ is God, he is the ultimate builder of the house that Moses had worked in during its early stages of development. Verse 5, Moses was a faithful household staff member who carried out a specific task at a specific time and for a specific purpose. But Christ, verse 6, 
is faithful over God's house as a son. Like the sons and daughters of that wealthy man, when God's son enters the scene, even the most honorable of all God's servants yields the floor. Now here's here's what we should understand this to mean. If you and I were to believe what some of these Jewish Christians seemed to be believing, that Christ merely came to renew the old covenant that God had once delivered to the people of Israel through Moses and through angels on Mount Sinai, if you and I were to believe that Christ merely came to renew the old covenant, then our relationship with God today would still be defined by and bound to the law of Moses. But it is not. And this is precisely the errored belief that the writer of Hebrews is trying to correct. This whole letter is aimed at correcting that. Christ did not come to merely renew the old covenant. He came with his bloodshed to ratify a new and better covenant. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, Chris, that's all great, that's all well and good, but what about the Ten Commandments of the Old Covenant? Well, I'm really glad you asked. Some of the Ten Commandments communicate things that God has always desired and will always desire of all his people yesterday, today, and tomorrow. For instance, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Isn't this what got Adam and Eve into trouble long before Moses even wrote this down? Not only did God expect this of his people long before Moses, he still expects this of us today, and we know so because it is emphatically repeated in various ways throughout the New Testament. How about these commands? You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Aren't these, isn't these what got Cain into trouble long before Moses wrote these down? Not only did God expect these of his people long before Moses, he still expects these things of us today and we know so because they are emphatically repeated throughout the New Testament. Now, how about this one? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it set apart. Or how about all of the statutes and commands related to circumcision and dietary restriction and the festivals? How about those? Can you give a reason as to why we don't? While these commands were perfect in the early developmental stages of God's house, the New Testament books on repeat, starting at Acts 15, starting with even some of Jesus' words about he is the Lord of the Sabbath, starting with Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Hebrews, next week's passage, Hebrews, and more, insists that in the new covenant era of the church, which has been ratified by the blood of Christ, these commandments are no longer binding upon us. It might help us to think of it this way. Think of it this way with me. I'm going to illustrate. When a house is under construction, when it's being built, 
There are zoning and building codes and permits and safety measures that must be abided by. And these things, like the old covenant, are critical for the construction of the house. But once the house is built, these things are no longer necessary. I mean, tonight, while you watch the Super Bowl, you could wear a hard hat in your finished house in your living room. You could. But you, that's not necessary. And you could keep applying for a building permit on your property, I suppose. But within the framework of the completed new covenant house of Christ, the era of the church, some of those things are simply no longer necessary. And the New Testament writers spill a lot of ink to make this clear. Now, before we move on to point number two, I need to be incredibly clear about something with you. The writer of Hebrews is not wanting us to depreciate Moses in the least. Moses was used of God powerfully to carve out a distinguished people and, verse 5, to testify to the things that would later make sense at the coming of Christ. We must never unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament as Pastor Anley Stanley proposes we do. Because if we fail to read and to meditate on the Old Testament, it will greatly diminish the soul-quenching significance of Jesus' coming. When it comes to God's house, Moses and the people of Israel are not in some sort of trailer in the backyard of God's house. Moses and the people of Israel are the foundation upon which the church is built by Christ. Point number one, by Christ, the house of God is built. And we are his house, second half of verse six, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. To Christ, the house of God must hold, point number two. In verses seven through 11, the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95 where King David reflects on the age-old story of the people of Israel wandering around the wilderness on account of their unbelief. And while the detailed account of this story can be found in the book of Exodus, here's the gist of it, all right? 430 years of, after 430 years of slavery in Egypt, God delivered the people of Israel from the Egyptians by parting the Red Sea for their escape. When the people of Israel got to the other side, God caused the waters to return upon themselves and all the Egyptian soldiers, soldiers who were chasing them were destroyed. The people of Israel, after singing and praising and giving thanks to God on the, on the bank of the other side, the people of Israel started to get hungry and thirsty. And in their moment of hunger, the people of Israel make an about face and they cry out, it would have been better if God had just killed us while we were in Egypt because at least our stomachs would have been full. 
Now catch the weight of this with me because it's the point of warning that the writer of Hebrews is here trying to make in this passage. Even though God had just parted the Red Sea before their very eyes, even though God had just delivered them from all their captors, a moment of hunger and thirst and discomfort and uncertainty in the wilderness was all it took to reveal they really didn't trust God at all. At all. They really didn't believe that God would bring them safely into the land of rest he had promised to give them. In next week's passage, the writer of Hebrews will have a lot to say about how the true promised land and the true Sabbath rest is found in Christ. But for today, the writer of Hebrews laments in verses 16 through 19 that because this particular generation of Israelites did not believe that God could or would finish what he had meticulously started, Because of their deep-seated unbelief, they were not permitted to enter the land of promise and rest at all. Now here's the lesson for you and I this morning as followers, believers of Christ. Similar to the people of Israel who stood on the bank of the Red Sea, do you find yourself now in a moment of need and worry and discomfort and uncertainty. Yeah, 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 yeah. God has delivered us, but but what am I going to do for my next meal? And it may not necessarily be as basic as that, but my, my, my question is, do you find yourself at all, and if you're like me, you do find yourself in this, do you find yourself in a moment of, 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 of need and worry and discomfort in, in the cultural tide of this moment? Are you facing uncertainty or lack or opposition, whether at, at school or at, at work or in your neighborhood or in your family? Verse, two is the, or verse 12 is the admonishment. Brother, sister, if that's you, take care. That unbelief does not rear its ugly head and lure you away. Take care that it doesn't. And here's how you do that. Hold fast to Christ. And here's here's how you do that. Acknowledge your ongoing need for Christ. Holding fast, acknowledging, I need you, I need you, I need you. I'm clinging to you. I'm dependent upon you. I'm reliant upon you. Take care that unbelief does not lure you away and do so by holding fast. Acknowledge your ongoing need for Christ. In your most difficult and helpless and uncertain moments, feel your ongoing need for Christ Remind yourself of gospel promises, such as this one, Romans 8, 32. If your heavenly father didn't even spare his own son in order to adopt you as his son or daughter, how could he possibly, right now, 
at this point, now that you're on the other side of the Red Sea, how could he possibly not give you everything you need to live as a son or a daughter? If God didn't even spare his own son in the process of adopting you, he's not going to leave you hanging. He's not going to leave you. Are you tempted to think what these Jewish Christians seem to think? That though Christ has delivered you from the Red Sea of your sin, it is now up to you by works of the law to complete what God started in you through Christ. Will you remind yourself and be reminded by me right now that even on your best day, when the Holy Spirit has stirred in you the obedient fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, on your best day, believer, you are no more pleasing to God than when you first believed the gospel as a desperate sinner. There is always room for obedient growth and the Holy Spirit will do that in you. He will finish what has been started in you. He will. But nothing you do could possibly add to the righteousness that has been imputed to you simply by believing Christ is who he says he is. Remind yourself of this. And then do me a favor, because I forget this every single day too. And I'm tempted to run back and to, you know what? I'm going to start earning something. I'm going to earn my keep in this house. And the gospel is not opposed to obedience. But when we start regarding, all right, what, what have I got to, what, have, what do I, what do I, you, no, you know what? Come back to this. Saved by grace through faith, and nothing can shake that, and let the kindness of God Ignite in your heart the desire to be an aroma to him in all of life. Remind yourself of this. Remind me of this. Please. Verse 13, exhort one another. You see how, how the perseverance of the saints is a team sport? <laughs> You're not gonna hold fast without me in this group, and neither will I. God has called us into the family of God so that we would exhort one another and encourage one another and advise one another and preach to one another every day. And I know that some of your hearts are palpitating, like, what? I don't know, every day? I don't want to see these people every... Well, you know what? Start here, Sundays and Wednesdays. Just do that. As long as today is called today, don't you love that reasoning? Uh, today is going to be called today until Christ returns and, and he pulls back the curtain of eternity. As long as it's today, every single day, exhort one another and let us hold fast together to our confidence in Christ that he who began by grace a good work in us will by grace 
finish what he started in us. He has not brought us through the Red Sea of our sin onto the dry banks of the other side to simply say, guess what? Now it's up to you. Good luck. Good luck. The writer of Hebrews is confident that these brothers and sisters in Christ will heed the warning. They'll repent. They'll repent of the fact that they were looking down each other's noses, looking down their noses at all those other fledgling sinners who aren't as righteous as they are. They'll repent of that. And so should you. And so should I. They'll repent of the fact that with each new day, they've forgotten if the Father didn't even spare his own son to purchase me, why on earth won't he provide everything I need today to walk in a way that pleases him? In my workplace, while my job is on the line because I wear Christ on my sleeve, in my school, that scholarship I hope to hold on to, all of these things, you feel the cultural pressures right now. Do you think that God has left us to ourselves? No. No. No, he has not. So take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you this insidious rearing of its ugly head unbelief leading you to fall away. Don't fall away. Hold fast. And exhort one another while you do. Every single day. After this gathering even, come up and tell me, hold fast to Christ, brother. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Bought, sought, and brought. Jesus, the author and finisher of your perfection. Remind me of that. And I will you too. So that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness. It's so deceiving. It's so easy to wake up in the morning and think, gosh, I gotta claw my way through this day. Hold fast to Christ, for we have come to share in him. When we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's what the writer of Hebrews was confident. He was confident that these Jewish Christians would read this with an urgency of, yep, we share in Christ, and therefore we're going to hit the ground running. We're going to repent, and we're going to trust him. We're going to trust him. We're going to keep our eye on the completed work of Christ. And so should we. Brothers and sisters, the communion meal, the Lord's Supper is before us. And the Lord's Supper consists of the bread and the cup, which is to be taken in worshipful remembrance of Jesus' body and blood, which he poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The communion meal is for those who acknowledge their need for God's forgiveness and who repentantly believe that Jesus' death and resurrection has made the forgiveness of sin a reality. We stand forgiven in the blood of Christ shed on the cross of Calvary. We stand forgiven. There is nothing more to earn, nothing more to prove but to hold fast to that, I need you. I need you. I, I, am, I repeatedly need you. My need of you is ongoing. That's what we're saying as we come forward to declare the body and blood of Christ. I need you. 
I need you. Please forgive me. Please hold me fast while I hold fast to you. Let's hold fast. Let's please, please hold me and forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Forgive me for my worst day of wretchedness. Forgive me for my best day of righteousness that is done in my own name. Looking down my brothers and sisters all judgmentally. Forgive me for that. Forgive me for the fact that I enter here often as a consumer, that I just come to be to receive, 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 and be filled, and I don't ever think of exhorting and encouraging brothers and sisters to hold fast. Please forgive me for that selfishness. You've brought me into this body to play a serious role in helping these saints to hold fast. Help me to do it. That's kind of the song of our hearts as we walk forward to partake of the bread and the cup. Repentance and celebration. Repentance and celebration. And so, I'm going to pray. If you're a believer, I would invite you forward to take of the, the Lord's Supper. And uh, Chelsea and I will, will sing while we do. So let's pray together, and I would invite the, the servers to come forward as well. Oh, Father, Father in heaven, in the reading of and exhorting of your word today, we have heard your voice. Your voice, of course, being the written, the only inspired and inerrant part of this sermon is your word. And I pray, Lord, I ask, Lord, that you would help us by your merciful Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts in repentance and that you might enliven our hearts in celebration for even after trusting in the completed work of Christ, we have gone to many sins. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. Help us to feel our need for Christ and help us, Lord, to rejoice in that all of our needs Yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever are met in him. Help us to live lives that are confident in this gospel. Grace is scandalous. It's too simple. Help us to live lives that are confident in and worthy of the gospel. Increase in us, Lord, the fruit of spirit. Increase in us a reverence for your word. Increase in us a love for you that streams through every fiber of our flesh, every bone. Help us, Lord, to grow in our love for you and for each other as we await that day when we will see Christ with unveiled face. Thank you for the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And for any who are not here who have yet to believe this, Lord, while they withhold from partaking of communion, I do pray that they would take up this promise. Confess your sin and believe in your heart that God has raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead after paying for your sin and you will be saved. Oh Lord, help us each to believe that afresh in Jesus' name. Amen.